Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. It's great to see everyone this morning. Good morning, church. Oh, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. All right. Well, as you can see, I'm not Jim. So, you know, we have a different haircut, I think, is really the main point. Um, yeah, and I'm not Tyler either. Um, you have heard my name mentioned already a couple of times. I'm Kenyon. I'm really happy to be here. I'm an elder here. I've been going to this church for over 30 years. It seems like a long time. I guess it is a long time. Um, not as long as some, I suppose, but uh, anyway. Yes, I'm one of the elders here at the church, and it's a privilege for me to be up here this morning to bring God's word to you this morning. Now, I'll tell you up front, I'm an amateur, right? I'm an amateur. I, I'm not a professional preacher or pastor. I kind of do it on the side. It's kind of like being a home mechanic, you know, like I'll, I'll jack the car up and I'll do some work on my car, but it pretty much takes me twice as long as it would take a professional to do. So, that being said, get comfortable because, <laughs> all right, so... Just kidding. Um, no, in, in all seriousness, it is a privilege to get to, to bring you the word this morning. And I, I've really enjoyed getting to dig into the word, get it, uh, to dig into this passage and uh, to see what God has to reveal to us through Jesus' teaching in the Sermon of the Mount. So uh, I'm going to say a quick prayer here, and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our Father and that we can come boldly before you and that you welcome us as your children. I pray, Father, that you would teach us through the words that you put in your word, through the scriptures, and uh, through the preparation that I've made this, um, this time that we can gather together and seek you. And Holy Spirit, teach us, um, speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's dive in. So let's review. Last Sunday, for those of you who weren't here and those of you who were, Jim introduced to us kind of a subset of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's where he's going into this thing he called the audience of one, and it's where we're interacting with God, the one. He's the one. He's the one we're having an audience with, and he divided this up into kind of three sections. Last week, he hit on the almsgiving section the passage that he looked at last week where we should be doing our almsgiving and, and our service in a way that doesn't draw attention to ourselves because it's not about ourselves and it's about God. This week and then in some subsequent weeks, we'll be looking at prayer as a means of seeking God and again, an audience of one where we're working to commune with God, just us and him. And then after that, we'll look at uh, a, a a sermon on fasting as well, subduing the physical needs, the physical nature of ourselves as humans, the physical appetites, and, and keeping that in the proper place. So Jim brought up this, uh, um, this kind of part of the bottom line. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a pretty high bar. He pulls that from Matthew 5.48 and adds to it, really. Jesus says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But then he one-ups that and says, you have to actually exceed that. And that's something that 
we can't do on our own, but we have help. We have help from the Holy Spirit. We have help from God himself. And the bottom line that Jim brought us is this, a righteousness that exceeds, that exceeds the righteousness of the, uh, the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees is a righteousness that lives for that audience of one. It's a righteousness and it's a heart that seeks after being with God one-on-one. So let's continue on that. This week, we're going to look at prayer and the idea of um, seeking God in that one-on-one relationship in prayer. Let's look at the text first. And I'm going to read through Matthew 6, 5 through 8. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Not a really long passage, right? But it's plenty to work with, I'll tell you. Um, There's a lot in here. It's not just that top layer. I mean, the top layer, you could almost say, well, this is easy. Just go in, shut the door, and pray. That's it, you know? But no, that, the sermon's not over, so don't go anywhere. The, the top layer, pursue a, a secret prayer life. Don't toot your horn about it. Don't go telling everybody. Don't stand on a street corner. I don't see a whole lot of people out praying on street corners, but I, uh, I guess the Pharisees did it. Um, Jesus wanted to contrast the right way to pray with the wrong way. So who was Jesus talking to when he said this? It, it's, it's probably not the Pharisees, right? Because they are the hypocrites. It's probably, well, let's, let's go back. Um, if we go all the way back to Matthew chapter 4, when we started the Sermon of the Mount, you'll see that these were great crowds of people big masses of people that had heard Jesus speaking, that they saw the wisdom that he uh, dispensed. They heard what he was saying, and they said, this is a guy who knows what he's talking about. Plus, he started healing people, people who had diseases and illnesses. So these were people that needed help. They were downtrodden people. They were sick people. They were diseased people. They wanted some help. These were the people who were not the ones who were holier than thou, who were the ones out praying on the street corner. These were not the hypocrites. These people didn't have an appearance of godliness. These were people that were the, the, the deplorables. They were the ones that were rejected, that were poor. And Jesus is saying, don't be like the people who lift themselves up the hypocrites. Let's take an even closer look at the word hypocrites. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't know Greek. I won't speak to you in Greek, or at least not that I know of, although I may do it without even realizing it. So, I actually found the Greek word for hypocrite in the Greek New Testament lexicon. And, let me see if it's there. 
I'm going to turn this way. Okay. The Greek word for hypocrite in Greek letters looks like... It looks like a bunch of Greek letters. <laughs> and if you looked at them and you don't know Greek, you would say, what does that look like? It's got a, a squiggle like this and, a, you know, it, so... And, and so what good is that, right? So I did a little bit of amateur research, as I want to do, and I found that if you go into, this is great, Wikipedia, you can find a lot about Greek there. So if you want to be a Greek scholar, go to seminary. But if you want to actually prepare a sermon about Greek words, you can go to Wikipedia. And found that if you take the Greek word, the Greek letters for hypocrite that you find in the ancient Greek text, and you say, wait, this letter stands for this. This letter stands for this. You know, just do that letter by letter translation. You'll find that the Greek word for hypocrite is hypocrite when you change the letters around into Latin letters. So, I, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll hear this crazy Greek word like, you know, uh, you know some translation of uh, faith or love or this or that. You know, Jim will come up here and he'll actually say, say the Greek words and that's, that's, that's good. So the Greek word, the Greek word for hypocrite is hypocrite. So now you are all Greek scholars too, right? Um, so this I found to be really interesting because we don't have to, we don't have to say, well, what was, the, what was the sense? What was the case in which it was, it was intended? We, we can say, when we see the word hypocrite in our English Bible, the word means hypocrite. Okay, so now let's take another look at that. The word hypocrite, back in the ancient Greek, it was a word that actually referred to stage actors. Someone who plays a part. A stage actor. After the vernacular, after the use of that term grew and expanded, it came to take on an offstage meaning. And it came to take on a religious meaning. And that meaning was not entirely a good one. It was someone who plays a part where they're trying to appear good, where they're trying to appear a certain way, but they're very different in real life. Just like a stage actor is a certain person on the stage, and when you see them off the stage, they're completely different. They're a different person. So that's, that's a, a curious thing that, that word meant the same thing even back in ancient times. So Webster's Dictionary, again, online, just a tip for you, go to Webster's. Um, the meanings are a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue or religion, or a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. There are many synonyms for hypocrite. Deceiver, charlatan, Imposter, phony, cheat, fake, fraud, liar. These are people who act godly. They act virtuously, but they're really just actors. Do I get it? Ah, oh, there it is. See? All right. And then in the next slide, and then the one after that, you see. Boop, boop, there it is. There. There you go. See, I told you. All right. Um. So these people who are basically stage actors, but there's no stage. We're the stage. We get to see people who are hypocrites, 
acting in a way where they're a different person on the outside and someone else on the inside. Do we know of any hypocrites in our world today? No, yes, I, I think I see some heads nodding. I mean, I, I, I'll, be, I'll be totally honest with you. I'm a hypocrite sometimes. Sometimes I act in a certain way. I put on airs. Sometimes you may be a hypocrite too. Sometimes we are like the hypocrites. But we do see a lot of people out there who are hypocrites. Public figures, politicians, especially we're sensitive to, and the ones that get the really big news, are religious leaders, right? Those who have condemned this bad behavior, oh, and then it turns out they were engaged in that bad behavior themselves. That is a hypocrite. Paul warned Timothy about people like this. In Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's the kicker. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. In, in, in verse 13, he says, basically, he's talking about these people. He says, these are evil people and what? Imposters. They will go from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived. Sometimes we tell ourselves lies, people tell themselves lies so often and so consistently that they start to believe them themselves. These people will go on deceiving others and being deceived, deceiving themselves. Those are hypocrites. These are the people that Paul warns us about in the last days. We see people like that all around us. And it's true today, just like it was true back in Jesus' day. Jesus actually started the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he, he preached that at the beginning of his, uh, his ministry on earth. At the end of his ministry on earth, he actually told a parable that has a really strong parallel to his teaching here, and I'm going to read that. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by, stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. He was a pretty, pretty righteous guy. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus responds. Jesus interprets. He doesn't leave it in the dark. You know, he says, this is what I mean by this. This man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves 
will be exalted. That's the contrast. That's the difference between a hypocrite and someone who's not a hypocrite. Someone who's genuine. Someone who lives their life just like they are on the inside. That's what a non-hypocrite is supposed to do. To be genuine. To be humble. For example, the tax collector was humble. Another humble man. The, the most humble man in Scripture was Moses. Uh, he's mentioned as being so feeling so unworthy, he didn't even want to be God's messenger, even after God called him. He couldn't look on God or he would die. He had this experience with God where he was aware of where he stood with God. A non-hypocrite is contrite. They know where they stand after their iniquity. After what they've done, they realize, after this experience with God, wow, I need to repent. I need to turn away from what I've been doing. This is David when he was confronted with his sins and even other issues in his life. He was so genuine, he would write about the contrition in his heart. Or sometimes it was not just contrition, it was just fear or anger. He was, he was just himself before God. He was not a hypocrite. Or Isaiah, the prophet, who was already a prophet before he had this experience where he witnessed those in, in uh, the presence of the Lord, those angels singing, holy, 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 and he was there and he thought, oh my goodness, I'm done for. Woe is me. He felt like he was going to die because he, suddenly he was in the presence of God and he knew what kind of man he was. And there was no being a hypocrite there. He was completely exposed. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. There's another example that, that I really liked when I started getting into this passage. And uh, it's the example of Job. So some of you know the, the story of Job. He was a wealthy man. He was a successful man. He'd been blessed with many things. But God allowed those things to be taken away from him. And Job was suffering immensely. He'd lost his family. He'd lost his wealth. He'd lost his dignity. He'd lost everything but his life. Even his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? You're done. You know, you're cursed. You should just end it. And Job didn't do that. He refused. And in Job chapter 13, verse 15, he's got this spark. And he says, I don't know what God's going to do to me. You know, I, I may take my case before him. He may slay me. And he says, though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. I want to have my day in court. I want to say, what, what's going on with this? Why did all this have to happen to me? And so he did that. He started to kind of present where he's at to the Lord, to the creator of the universe, to the blessed controller of all things. Job is saying, well, you know, and then you took away my family, and then you, you so... Here's Job sort of making his case before the Almighty. And then God shows up. And this is, this is a homework assignment for you all. I think this is something that was really amazing to me. Um, and it's not the first time I've read this chapter, but when God answers Job in chapter 38, and when you think about what's just gone on, where Job has been sort of putting his case together and saying, 
you know, why did this happen? And, and I curse the day I was born and, you know, kind of give me an answer here, God. And then God shows up and you hear the authority and the power behind the creator of the universe. Let me read a little bit, just a portion of this. God goes on for chapters saying, let me tell you something about myself, Job, little man. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, where were you, Job? Did you have a hand in this? Are you the creator of the universe? Are you the almighty God that you should come and start bringing things up? And God went on chapter after chapter and at the end of his time, at the end of God's speaking back, giving Job an answer, his day in court, Job says, okay, I get it, I get it. You're in charge. And, and, and Job had an inkling of this, right? Though he slay me, still I will hope in him. And it turned out that was the case. Job had a right perspective. He was genuine. He said, I have these things. I want to have an experience with you, God, and I want to tell you what I think. And God said, bring it, bring it on. And then Job walked away from that saying, okay, I get it, I'm done. And he was humbled, even humiliated, but he was not a hypocrite. And he was transparent before the Lord. That's kind of the common theme with these men of old, and I'll say even men and women of our time who have an experience a genuine experience with God, we walk away different than we walked in. We're changed. Look at Moses was changed. He led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Isaiah was changed. He prophesied in the name of the Lord. David was changed. Paul was changed after his profound experience of seeing the Lord. We can't have a genuine experience with God without having some kind of sincere change. It's not always a huge, giant, outward change. It may be that cry of the heart that is, oh, help me, God, and then the peace that passes all understanding is the change. Or it may be something big where we say, I don't know where my life is going, God, and he can come to us and in that genuine time change our lives. We can't have a genuine experience with God without a change. And that brings, you, brings us to um, the point in this first section, and that is genuine prayer, a genuine experience with God, makes you align with who God is and who you are in his creation. That's the change that takes place. When we're aligned with God, we can align with who we are, where we stand in relation to him. That, that happened to Job in a big way. We can understand where we, 
where we are in his will and where we align with his will. That's the change that comes from being genuine in prayer, not being a hypocrite, but going into the presence of a supreme, almighty God and having that experience with him. So let's take a look at the second part of that passage. We have this almighty God, the one true God that we're going to be praying to. And then Jesus goes on to say, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So what are the Gentiles like? And we, we went through a, a definition of, of hypocrites, right? We found out um, they're the fake people. What, are, what is a Gentile? What, what does Jesus mean when he's talking about Gentiles? Well, we can go back to um, what the Gentiles believed and how they prayed back in Jesus' time and uh, get a little bit of understanding. Now, as believers in one true God, we know that the character of this God is unchangeable. The character of this God is loving, attentive, caring. He, he wants to hear our prayers. He listens to us, and we can go to him. The Gentiles, the pagans, they didn't have one true God. They didn't have one God. They had, <clears throat> they had a whole bunch of gods for different situations and different times and different things. And these gods were unpredictable. They were capricious. They were sometimes nasty. And so the Gentiles thought, I'm going to make a really good case for this God. I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to make it a really good, interesting prayer so that, so that I'll attract some attention, so that I'll really get them to listen to me. And in fact, there's a scholar, R.M. Ogilvie, who wrote the following about pagan prayer, about the prayer of the Romans. The first task was to secure the ear of the God through invoking the right names and the right places, kind of getting the secret formula. The next was to convince this God that the request was a reasonable one and within his competence to fulfill. Prayer does not presume a favorable result. It recognizes that divine goodwill is the first requirement and that, that's, that this goodwill is not always forthcoming. The Gentiles didn't know that this was going to be a good God, that they were going to have their best interest at heart. So they had to make a case. They had to use a lot of words and say, here's why I think you should give me you know, this thing or protect me in this war or uh, give us a good harvest in the, in the fall or, or something like that. The prayer itself had to be worded to cover every possibility. Roman prayers were phrased like legal documents. Right, we all know how many words legal documents have, right? <laughs> the fine print. So Roman prayers had to be phrased like legal documents with repetitions, accumulated synonyms, and detailed particularizations. I think I said that right. Say that five times fast. To make sure that there was no loophole left. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't create a legal document. This isn't a contract. This is your father you're talking to. He's paying attention. He wants to hear from you. He wants to give you good things. He's different than the pagan gods. He's even better than an earthly father. And interestingly, I, I was thinking about 
that contrast, or, or really that comparison. It should, should be um, between our Heavenly Father and our earthly fathers. And um, there was this incident back when I was in, in college where I had decided to go to the mall. For those of you who don't know what a mall is, it's a collection of stores where they sell things actually at the store. And uh, you don't have to log in or anything. You just walk in. Um, so I was going to the mall, and I invited my girlfriend at the time. And actually, she's here this morning, too. Um, Anyway, we had gone to the mall. I don't know if we had bought anything. Um, I, I don't really remember that much about the actual mall experience. It's, it was kind of forgettable. Um, but driving home, we were on First Avenue down by the U of A, and a car pulled out of another lane and, and slammed into us. And that was the memorable part, right? So we actually had to chase down that car, wave at them to stop, and eventually they stopped, and we had an exchange of information, and, and um, I thought, okay, this is good. I'm, I'm going to handle this. I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm a wise 19 or 20-year-old. I can't remember when it was. I knew. I knew what I needed to do. So uh, exchanged the information with this lady, and I got an estimate on my car and sent that off to her, and she said, oh, my goodness, I had no idea it'd be that much. Uh, yeah, we're not going not gonna to do this. And you, by the way, you need to give me your insurance information so I can get your insurance and, and get my car fixed. I thought, wait a minute, that's not how it's supposed to go. It was your fault. And so then I started to get really nervous, and I thought, what am I going to do? I can't handle this on my own. Who should I call? Did, did someone say Dad? You're right. You're right. I picked up the phone. It was a landline. There were these phones that actually had a cord. And uh, I had to call long distance. I had to actually pay extra because this call was from Tucson to, or just to, just to Phoenix. It was, anyway, yeah, extra cost. But it was worth it. It cost me something. Actually, I picked up the phone and I said, Dad, I need help. I need help. And what do you suppose he did? He knew exactly what needed to happen. He, he said, don't worry, don't worry, you're okay, don't worry, we'll get this figured out, and uh, we'll just call George. George. So back then, you didn't get insurance online. You actually called a guy who was an agent, and uh, it was George, George Day. He was a good guy. Um, so George will know what to do, my dad said. We'll call George. And he was right. He knew what to do. The, the greatest thing about calling my dad was he was my dad. And, and he was experienced, and he calmed me down, and he said, we'll fix this. We'll take care of this. And he was right. I, I, you know, we got the cars fixed. You know, the, the, the insurance companies, maybe they had like an arm wrestling match or something. I'm not sure what they did, but, but I didn't hear anything else about it. It went away. The problem went away. Why? Now, I mean, it's not as simple as this, right? This is my earthly father, but I called my dad, and he fixed it. And that was my earthly father. Now, the reason I like this story, and I kind of don't like it, is this. Because I didn't call my dad every day. 
and maybe not even every week. And I had a problem, and so what did I do? I called Dad. I didn't call him up and just say, hey, Dad, I was wondering how you're doing. How are things? How are things at the church up in, you know, up in Phoenix? How are, how's your work going? You know, I, I didn't always do that. I had a problem, and I went to Dad. And you know what he said to me? He said, why are you calling me just because you have a problem? No, he didn't say that. He said, we'll fix this. That was my earthly father. Matthew 7, 9, and 10. This is later on. This is the end game on the Sermon of the Mount here. It's, it's later on. Matthew 7, 9, and 10. Which of you, if your son asked for bread, now he's speaking to fathers, if your son asked for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, if you earthly fathers, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Our Father in heaven, as much as our earthly fathers may know what we need, he's better. He's better. When we pray, we pray to a true, gracious, caring God who invites us to bring our request to him. He's our Father, and he wants to give us good gifts. And that's kind of the point of that second passage. So you have these two passages here. They're kind of, they kind of balance, balance each other out. You've got this, don't be a hypocrite because you're praying to the God and creator and controller of the universe, all-powerful, sometimes wrathful, holy God, woe is me, God, the supreme creator of the universe. Be genuine. Don't try and hide things from him. Be transparent. And then on the other side, we have this. You're bringing a request up to your father. This is your father. He wants to hear from you. This is dad. So the bottom line here out of these passages is this. We have the awesome opportunity to have an audience with the supreme creator of the universe who is our loving, caring dad. He can do anything. He knows what we need before we ask. He can snap his fingers and make things happen. And we have that opportunity. In genuine prayer, this is who we get to go to. This is who we get to pray to. This is who we should be praying to. So let me go through a, a handful of things that, that we should be acting through out of this. How does that change our actions? I'll suggest the following. When you're praying, maybe before you pray, maybe while you're praying, take a moment to think about this. You're entering into the presence of the creator of the universe. This is not nothing. This is not something to be taken lightly. This is something that the ancient priests in Israel used to prepare for rigorously, dangerously. They were afraid to enter the presence of God because they might be struck dead. This is the supreme creator of the universe. We don't enter that presence lightly. And yet, he's our father. Hold on to that thought. Next thing. When you're praying, remind yourself that you don't need credit 
You're not trying to earn anything. You're not trying to gain anything. You're not trying to impress anyone with your prayer, with your prayer time, with your quiet times. You don't have to go and announce what you've done. You can go into a quiet place by yourself. And the reward you get is to align yourself with God and God's will, to understand where you stand. This is why he created us, to be in the right place in his creation. When you're praying, think about being genuine, being honest, being real. Don't put on a mask. Don't put on some kind of holy outfit when you're coming before God or when you're out in front of other people. Sometimes you may have feelings of grief, loss, hurt, fear, doubt, anger. We, we have these feelings. We're human. God knows this. Jesus knows this. He had feelings too. And yet, God wants us to bring those to him. And we can even make our case to him. And one way or another, he'll put us in our place. But he wants us to be honest with him. He wants us to be genuine. When you're praying, consider that God is your loving father. You can make petitions and requests of him. He wants to help you. He wants to give you good gifts. He wants to provide for you even better than an earthly father ever could. And then the last thing is this. There's more to come on prayer. There's more that we can learn from Jesus in his teaching on prayer. And uh, we'll, we'll look at that in the next couple of weeks. For now, I'm going to go ahead and say a prayer. And then we're going to have Tyler come up. And we're going to commune together and also with our God. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your teaching. We thank you for your word. I pray that you would allow us to have a right relationship with you, both in terms of our acceptance of Jesus' death and resurrection as a payment for our sins, but also a right understanding of where we stand with you. We thank you that you're our Father. We thank you that you provide for us and love us and that your will is perfect and that we can align with that and that's really the best thing for us. Give us a great day the rest of today and may we enjoy the communion together as we are saints and we are your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.